Amen. And let's pray together as we uh, prepare to open the word of the Lord. God, we do thank you that you have granted us your word. You've given it to us as a means of instruction, as a guide, as a revelation of you, your character, the way you work in the world, the way you move in our midst. So God, today we humble ourselves before you, before your word, and we pray that you would Grant us understanding. Help us to comprehend what you've written there and be able to apply those things in our lives that need to be changed, moved into alignment with you. And Father, even as I, as I speak, I pray that you, would, that you would be honored, that you would bring to our minds those things that are dishonoring to you. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and then only those things that are of you would be retained by us. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So there's a phrase that I've heard said over the years, and that is, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Dietitians and medical professionals have used that phrase to discuss the impact of certain foods on our health. The earliest version of that phrase was coined by a French lawyer, and I'm not going to try to say his name because it is French. But he was writing, interestingly, in, an, in a journal that dealt with gout and the meditations on various um, things dealing with your intestinal system. And he wrote this. He said, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. He said that roughly in 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 the 1820s. It got passed on to Germany in the 1860s and came over here to the United States in the 1930s by a man named Victor Lindar who developed what was called the catabolic diet. And he's trying to, all of these guys are trying to help us to understand that food impacts our our anatomy, our physiology, our bodies. Each of us deal with food differently. And if you, um, you know, I know some of us have, we can't eat certain foods. Some of us can't eat gluten. Some of us can't eat sugar. Some of us can't eat carbs. Some of us can't eat tomatoes. Some of us can't eat meat. And all of those things because our bodies are processing things differently. And so if we eat those things, then our body feels the effects of that. Now, I bring this up today not to try to get us on a church-wide diet, though I think I could benefit from that, but to correlate our spiritual lives with spiritual food. You see, spiritually speaking, we are what we eat. And in the passage that we are considering today, Jesus is calling us to feast on true spiritual food. So if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open it to John chapter 6, we're going to begin uh, by looking at verse 16, and we'll go all the way to about verse 59. Um, And you're welcome to take notes in your outline. But what I want us to do is really think through three things that I think Jesus, three principles or applications that we can glean from this text. 
And the first is this, that separation from Jesus reveals our need for him. Separation from Jesus reveals our need for him. If you remember last week, we talked about when Jesus fed the 5,000. And that is one of the few miracles that happens in all four Gospels. And so Jesus is there. He's got a few loaves of of bread and a few fish. And he multiplies it for this huge, vast crowd. And they were so amazed at what was going to happen, what Jesus had done, that they decided they wanted to make him king. And so instead of being drawn into their plans, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You guys go home. Disciples, you get in a boat and I'm going to go up on the mountain. And some of the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus went up there to pray. But look at what it says in John 6, verses 16 to 21. When evening came, the disciples went out, went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the at the land to which they were going. You see, as we read this, it's a little bit unclear what Jesus, what the disciples knew, how, where they would meet up with Jesus. He simply said, get in the boat, go over to Capernaum, we'll catch up. My guess is that Jesus had just sent them away. He wanted them to be away from the crowd, from their influences. He wanted them to be away from him so he could have some time to pray, to reflect. Now, the Sea of Galilee, if you are familiar with uh, the Israel uh, map, the Sea of Galilee is a fairly shallow sea. It's about 600 feet below sea level, which sounds kind of funny to say a sea is below sea level, but below the Mediterranean. And it was also, so it was shallow and it was also surrounded by mountains. And so one of the things that that did is it caused great storms to pop up very quickly, very abruptly. And some of these guys, because they were fishermen, they knew that. They knew that it would happen. And yet, for whatever reason, they were afraid in the midst of this storm. They were not making any headway until, at least until Jesus came along. But I think there's a potential lesson for us here. And that is that it's, it's not hard for us to recognize that we are physically separated from Jesus. We believe that after he died on the cross, he walked on earth for about 40 days. And then he ascended and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We'll learn later in our study of the book of John that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So we have the presence of God with us. And yet we are physically detached from Jesus even just as the disciples were physically separated from him. But I wonder if their physical separation might parallel our own spiritual separation. How often do we walk through the storms of life and assume that we can handle them on our own? All the while while failing to realize that he is there. He is in the midst of the storm. He has power to help in our time of, of need and he is fully aware of our turmoil, of our need. Are we aware? Are we calling to Him for help? Are we reaching out to Him? Or are we simply trying to gut it up? Or use bootstrap mentality as, 
as is so often referred to in American vernacular. Robert Hawker, a Puritan preacher, once prayed, he said, So when my poor heart is afflicted, when Satan storms or the world frowns, and when I suffer sickness, or when all your waves and storms seem to go over me, what a relief it is to know that you, Jesus, see me and that you care. So help me, Lord, to look to you and to remember you. And oh, that blessed scripture in all the reflection, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He bore them and carried them all the days of old. Amen. So Jesus and his disciples, they end up on another shore. They're reunited and now things are going well or so it seems. They're there in the town of Capernaum. As we read earlier, we got a chance to see that those people who were on the other side that had just been fed, are, are, they're, they're going back and they're remembering, hey, there was only one boat there and only the disciples got into it. Where is Jesus? So they began searching for him and, and they finally find Jesus. But I think that through this conversation that they have with Jesus, we get to see that Jesus exposes our motivation for searching and addresses the true spiritual need that we have. Look in your Bibles at John six twenty-five to 26. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw signs, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. If you remember in our study in John, we, we, we talked about a couple other conversations that Jesus has had with people. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, a, a part, one of the Pharisees, one of the religious rulers, and he meets with him at night and he does the same kind of thing. He, he cuts right to the chase. Nicodemus is asking a certain question and, and Jesus says, no, it has to be this way. Unless you're born again, you shall not see life. And then in the very next chapter, Jesus has this conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And she asks him all sorts of things, and he cuts to the chase too. He cuts to the core of their concerns. And, and here in this encounter, I think one of the things that we see is that these people who were following Jesus, who were searching for him, who had been fed miraculously, they're wanting worldly satisfaction. They're wanting earthly food. Imagine what it would be like if, if all we had to do was follow Jesus and all of our needs would be met, all of our physical needs. We wouldn't have to work for food. We wouldn't have to cook it. Oh, man, that would be good. We wouldn't have to pick the menu. Isn't that one of the most difficult things? That, that was something that has really surprised Danielle and I as we have grown older into adulthood. What are we going to eat? So Melody made us a menu. And we just go through the menu every month. Same thing. Works out great. But here, you know, Jesus urges them not to seek for things that will expire. John 6.27 says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on Him the Father has set His seal. Don Carson, one of the commentators that I was studying this week, said that his point was not that they should attempt some novel form of work, but that merely material notions of blessing are not worth pursuing. 
And how often is that that we equate God's blessing with material wealth or material goodness or good times and easy times? And he's saying, don't pursue those things that are going to fade. Then they begin to pick up what Jesus is putting down. And so they respond in verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? To which Jesus says in verse 29, the work of God is that you believe in the one he has sent. So they seem to be interested enough to pursue Jesus a bit further, but notice what Jesus says about the work. They want to know what kind of work do we, do we have to do? What kind of work is this? I know some of you guys volunteered this week to, to help out here in Helping Hands Poolsville and, and do work on a house, and, and there is good work that was done there. Yesterday, Zoe and I were with one of her friends, and we were cleaning out goat stalls. And man, that is hard work. And so they're asking, what is the work that we should be doing? But notice what Jesus says this work is. It's belief. Belief. When it comes to the work of belief, believing in who Jesus is, believing in why he came, where are you? What do you believe about Jesus? Is he Savior and Lord, or is he just another good teacher and a miracle worker? Is he a divine Santa Claus doling out blessings? Jesus is encouraging them to understand that he is more than what they think he is. He's not just a free meal. He is more. And so from there, they ask for some sort of sign as if feeding 5,000 people was not enough? I mean, I'm amazed. They just ate. And then they now have to assume that Jesus somehow got to Capernaum outside of a boat, but going on the water. So they ask him for some sort of sign, and they claim that Moses gave them sign of manna in the wilderness. So Jesus takes their mosaic sign and turns it. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Notice that he began that phrase by stating, Truly, truly. He is emphatic. In fact, again, Don Carson notes, he says, Jesus is persuaded that far too much attention has been lavished on Moses. It was all about Moses for some of these people. And yet far too little attention is placed on God, is given to God for what God is doing. Because he is the ultimate supplier of their bread from heaven. It's not Moses who brought them manna. It was God. Moses is dead. God is not. And so Jesus has been calling them to look beyond the temporary to the eternal. No matter what we eat, no matter how much we eat, we will eventually be hungry again. And as they wanted, it's as though they wanted to go from blessing to blessing, from one good feeling to another good feeling, from one moment. It's as though their entire spiritual journey was these spiritual highs. I've been in situations like that in places where I've experienced services and events that were emotionally and spiritually ecstatic. Do you ever get goosebumps? 
when you're singing. We're, actually, it happened to me when we were practicing this morning. I, one of the songs was just, it's like, wow. You, you feel it. You feel like the electricity of the Holy Spirit. You think, oh, man, I want that every time. Or you hear some amazing speaker, and it's as though he's picking up your mail, right? And he's like, oh, how did he know what I was going through? And he's talking right to me, and there's 15,000 people in this room. I'm like, wow. And yet, I've been in those places, and then I come home and realize that that spiritual high is un, it's not sustainable. That's not what our faith is built on. It's almost like those spiritual highs are spiritual junk food. Ooh, that's so sweet. That's so good. But too much of that, and we'll find that we're malnourished. But have you noticed that in our society? It seems we are working toward good feelings, toward that latest gadget, that car, that house, thinking that they will provide hope and meaning, only to find out that we need the next thing. And the next, the iPhone 10,000 is not enough because the iPhone 10,001 is coming around next year. In fact, some of the richest people in the world have been asked, how much is enough? You know what their response was? Just a little bit more. It's never going to satisfy that material wealth as material blessings. Worldly satisfaction will please us for a while, but it will eventually fail. And so these people talking to Jesus eventually get the point. And so they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. So rather than working for or hoping for temporary satisfaction, Jesus urges them to look for eternal satisfaction in the bread of life. And Jesus makes it plain in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And in many ways, this sounds like the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well in John 4, when he said to her in in chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, he said, Everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so his message is consistent. The bread and the water of this world will not provide eternal satisfaction. He is the source. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. I mean, think about this. I think... Danielle has been listening to this really funny snack um, podcast. And these two ladies get on there and they talk about all sorts of snacks that they really love. And, and what's, what's also funny is these guys are Christians. And so they a lot of times mix in Christian things. But they've been doing this sort of shark tank like evaluation. Oh, what kind of snack? Well, one of the ones we were listening to yesterday while we were driving around, this guy was promoting those uh, candy pumpkins that we get at Halloween. He's saying, this is like the best one. Some of you are like, ooh, those are gross. And he was making all these arguments. But think about this. What would happen if our diet was filled with candy pumpkins or jelly beans or Snickers bars? And that was all we ate. Our lives, our bodies, would, we would enjoy it for a while, but eventually the, the, the effects of that would wear off. And our cholesterol would be through the roof. Our waistline would be 
around the building. And it just wouldn't work. So Jesus is calling us to not think about that physical food, but to think about the spiritual food that we're taking in. So up to this point, Jesus has revealed our need and he has exposed our, our motivations. And now he's getting to the substance or the core of our faith, and that is that spiritual sustenance is found in feeding on Jesus by faith. You see, in this section, Jesus says some words that are extremely disturbing. But before we get to those disturbing words, I think it's important for, for us to understand a theological distinction, and that is election and perseverance. Election and perseverance. You see, uh, these concepts really respond to the questions of who is responsible for my salvation and can I lose my salvation? To which Jesus replies in, in chapter 6, verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Who is initiating that that relationship with Jesus. Who is it that's doing that? God the Father is initiating that. And who is keeping us? It's Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately, God draws us into a relationship with Him. He entices. He compels. And sure, we respond, but, but we cannot seek a relationship with God outside of His will. And in addition to that, those who have been drawn by God, who respond by faith, Jesus keeps us secure. And in fact, he said that he will raise us up on that last day. There's an old hymn that we've sung a few times, a, a hymn that has, has been redone in recent years, but, but it, the hymn is titled, He Will Hold Me Fast. And let me just read a couple of the opening lines to it. It says, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. The joy is that Jesus will hold us all the way until the day that he returns, all the way until the day that he calls us home. So we have this confidence that we are saved when we respond to the call of God and to Jesus and then are preserved for eternity. But the question becomes, how does all this happen? How does this happen? And it happens by feasting on Jesus by faith. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm going to devour this book, right? Are they really literally talking about chewing on paper? No, or, or they might see their grandchild and say, oh man, my granddaughter is so cute, I could just eat her up. We know that books don't taste very good and that grandma is not a cannibal. And we are used to that kind of, using that kind of language to describe finding full enjoyment in something. And so in this section, Jesus takes that same kind of comment, that same kind of metaphor in order to help us understand what we must do to, to have faith. In fact, this is our uh, suggested memory verse that we have for this week. John six fifty one says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for life and, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is in my flesh. 
And then after, the begin, after people begin to wonder, Jesus intensifies this analogy. He cranks up the heat on this. And listen to what he says in chapter 6, verses 53 to 58. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my body is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus has some harsh words. The question becomes, how do we interpret that? What in the world is Jesus talking about? You see, it seems like we could take these words literally. We could take these words metaphorically or we could take them spiritually. So let's briefly think about these things. So if Jesus is talking literally, he's, he's really calling them then to chew on his flesh and bone, which is gross. He's, he would be calling for a sort of cannibalism. And I think this is what his first audience heard. They're, they were so shocked by his words that they said, what, how can we do that? You see, Jesus is clearly using a form of hyperbole or exaggeration to get people to understand the significance of his role in their lives. So then the second question is, could we, or the second way of interpreting this would be metaphorically. Viewing Jesus' words this way would bring an interpretation into the sacrament or, or the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. In fact, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But the question is, is Jesus saying, so now you must enjoy this sacrament of bread and juice in order to be truly saved, in order to have faith? The challenge with that is that it's inconsistent with the rest of the book of John. You see, John never mentions the Lord's Supper. He talks a lot about that night. He talks about all the things that Jesus said. But in those final chapters, he doesn't talk about what we're going to do in a few minutes. So it would be inconsistent for John to include this phrase in his book, pointing forward to the Lord's Supper, when he doesn't even mention it in his gospel. So I think it means something different. Because there are people who look at the the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and think, well, this is a sacrament. In order to be saved, you have to eat and drink this. And I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. He calls us to do this, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But there is not salvation in eating the little wafer that we're going to eat and drinking the little juice that we're going to drink. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. These have a different role in that way. Which brings us to the third way of thinking about it. And that is spiritually. You see, in this view, to eat Jesus' body and drink his blood is a matter of faith. You see, just as the food that we eat and the liquids we drink provide our bodies, our physical bodies, life and sustenance, so too eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus provides spiritual sustenance. 
One of the commentators I looked at, a guy named Kenneth Gangle, says this. He said, these are not some esoteric philosophical statements offering an abstract idea. They form a personal invitation to participate spiritually in the life of Jesus by trusting in him. As Ezekiel ate the scroll in the prophetic days of the Old Testament, so believers today eat the bread of life when they acknowledge that the death of Jesus was on their behalf. You see, Jesus Jesus perfectly embodies the life that we will inevitably fail to live. And his substitutionary death and resurrection pay the price for our sinfulness that we could only pay with eternal separation from God in hell. So by faith, when we eat and drink of Jesus, we are putting our full and total confidence in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension by faith. So let me ask you, have you feasted on Jesus by faith? Have you entrusted your eternity to his perfect life? Or or are you simply looking for nice little encouraging things from Jesus? Are you still trusting in your own righteousness? Because let me challenge you, the Bible is clear. There is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Brother and sister in Christ, have you placed your trust in Jesus but still look for those spiritual highs or are tempted like I am by the things of this world? We need to repent and we need to align ourselves fully with Jesus Christ and to find our eternal nutrition in his life and his life alone. And so there, there's a sense in which today observing the Lord's Supper is both providential and yet it's also unfortunate. You see, it would be easy to equate the Lord's Supper with what Jesus was saying. It would be easy to to look at it and and say, well, Jesus was telling us that we should do this very thing, that we should eat this bread and drink this cup. Yet we have to remember that these are only symbols. These are only symbols. Really, not looking, he wasn't talking looking forward to the Lord's Supper. He's taking the Lord's Supper and he's calling us to look back and remember that it's in him and feasting on him by faith that we have eternal life. And so in just a few moments, we're going to, the guys in the back are going to play some music and we're going to pass these, uh, these around. And what will happen in case you're, you're visiting with us, we, we would celebrate what's called an open communion. And that is this, you don't have to be a member of Poolsville Baptist Church to partake in this, but you do have to be a follower of Christ. You do have to have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So if you've not yet done that, let me just encourage you to pray and meditate. Think about the things that Jesus has done for you. There'll be some things on the screen that you can look at and and, and really think through. And if you want to understand more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, talk to someone who's around you after the service. Ask them, what do I need to do to be saved? 
But for those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you, as these elements come around, take a piece of bread and take the juice. And then just hold on to it. We'll take these together as one body. But also I want to encourage you, those of you who are children, wait for your parents to let you know when it's time, when they feel like you are ready. Because if you're a brother or sister in Christ, they may say yes. They may want you to wait, and they've got good reasons for that. So trust in what your parents are doing. So let me ask the elders to come forward. And uh, and while they're coming, I'll pray over this, and then we will distribute these elements. Jesus, we thank you so much for the, the challenging words that you've given us, the things that you've called us to consider today. Lord, we thank you for the way that you willingly gave up your life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Your body was broken, your blood was spilled as the perfect atonement for us. And so, Lord, in gratitude, we come before you today grateful for the life that we have. And in eating this bread and drinking this juice, Lord, we are looking back and again in gratitude, but in awe that you love us the way that you do. That you would call us into fellowship with you. Thank you for your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.